Welcome to episode 21 of the RMD podcast from Reverse Mortgage Daily. I'm Chris Clow, editor of RMD. In this episode, we sat down with Jamie Hopkins, Managing Director of Carson Coaching and Director of Retirement Research at Carson Group, as well as a member of the Academy for Home Equity and Financial Planning, to discuss how the reverse mortgage attitudes of financial planners themselves, as well as those of their profession, have changed over the years, particularly in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic. We also discuss how Jamie first became aware of reverse mortgages, his journey toward greater involvement with the industry and with the academy, why emotion plays such a big role in people's financial decisions, his thoughts on what the reverse mortgage industry can do to keep its reputation moving in a positive direction, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy it. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me on the RMD podcast. I appreciate that you made the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris. Always good to connect with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, I always like to start off episodes of this show with something of an origin story, particularly for our reverse mortgage industry audience. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself for the few people who don't know who you are and how you got your start in the realm of finance in general. Yeah, so uh, you're like, origin story. I did not get bitten by a radioactive spider. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, shucks. Uh, Yeah, I know. So uh, my superpowers are are limited probably at this point just to my hair length, and that's about (laughs) it. (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, kind of my tie into this space really came from, you know, uh, Don Graves, Shelly Giordano, Wade Fowl are are all friends of mine in in addition to colleagues at different points in time. But I was uh, teaching at American College and and building a retirement income program with David Littell, RICP. And, you know, during that time period, right, it's a little bit different than a lot of other people in financial services in the sense that, you know, you probably entered into a company as an advisor, as an insurance person, as a salesperson, as a mortgage person. And so your compensation to somewhat dictated what you think about. Well, reality is academics, our compensation is not really dictated by products or strategies. So, you know, I think that we were able to take a little bit more of just an open view and not just in the reverse or just in the home equity, but kind of across the board when we were building out the program, because uh, it didn't matter. Like we weren't selling anything. So uh, we didn't kind of started looking at the numbers at that time and you know the coordinated strategy research that Barry Sachs and John Salter were doing right around then too was coming out and it just kind of ended up building it into the program and very quickly I found out that there actually weren't that many people <laughs> in the financial services space or academia that were really looking at this intersection of housing wealth and retirement at all like it's just I mean it's still fairly void of attention today but I mean it was close to nothing back in what is that 2012 mm-hmm. yeah wow well kind of jumping off of that i'm curious about diving a little bit deeper what was it that first got your attention about the potential ways that reverse mortgages could be beneficial to retirees were you swayed in those days by some of the reputational chatter that still persists about the industry and the product category or was there a scenario that brought you a greater level of understanding for reverse mortgages because everybody seems to have a different in to to the product category yeah and and so like the reputational stuff i for whatever reason none of it 
I guess uh, I started off kind of doubting everyone. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't really dislike any product strategy more than another. So if you go back further in my origin story, one of the things that really got me interested in financial services was actually I got to work on one of Bernie Madoff's cases when I was clerking in the appellate division. Oh, and wow. so that was the, you know, that's like the pinnacle of the trust conversation, but in the negative side, right, that people were implicitly trusting of this relationship. And again, right, Bernie, he did have a real business early on and it kind of fell apart and then just became them dumping money into their own bank account and not even investing. And, you know, he passed away recently, too. And, you know, but. I kind of looked at the whole industry as it just lacks a degree of trust in general. So when I look at products and strategies or compensation models, I don't necessarily take a view that anyone is inherently bad or inherently worse or better than something else. So I try to take as most of an agnostic approach as I can to all strategies, products, compensation models, and start from that point. So to me, I think that's been helpful. But again, right, like I got lucky enough that when I was coming into this particular aspect of my career, my compensation, right, I'm, I'm an academic, I was a professor, and it didn't matter, I wasn't selling something. So if we took a harsh stance on something, that was okay. Like I, I've, I've, you know, I've taken some harsh stances on different things, before because I felt like that's where the numbers, it's where the math and it's where the, you know, behavior might fall out. So it didn't really impact me in that sense. But the sense that reverse mortgages have and annuities, for another instance, have a reputational issue is it really important, right? Like, it's not to say that I'm disregarding that, but it I try not to let those things influence my view of something. But then I do know, like, if we're going to get better usage of home equity and retirement, if we're going to get more secure retirement income, we need to break down some of those misconceptions or change the dynamic in conversation. And that's very, very hard to do. I think, you know, over the last nine years, the reverse conversation has shifted a little bit. And I think some of the, you can tell by the media, we've done a media review and that's actually improved over that time frame. So there is, uh, you know, there, you could look at that as a data point to say there's been improvement out there. So it is improved, still probably has a long way to go. I'm curious, approaching things from the academic perspective and understanding the interactions that the emotions have with the perceptions of the reverse mortgage product, is that something that is, can that be applied to other financial services as well? Are you surprised that as much emotion as there is comes into the fold or is that just kind of the nature of, of people dealing with their money? Yeah, I think that's probably more in the nature of people dealing with their money. <laughs> you know, people make emotional decisions. And there's this uh, kind of uh, balance out there when you think about, you know, behavioral finance. And people are, th there was this, uh, I would say, brief period of time, and it still exists today, where people are like, we need to get, a, you know, emotions out of our money and out of our decision-making. And actually, reality is like, we we really shouldn't do that. <laughs> our brain craves emotional data, right? Like, we make better decisions when we include emotional data as part of the decision-making. Like, that's actually okay. And now, we don't want our emotions to completely override our analytical thinking and long-term goals. I mean, that's where we get to the, right, what we don't want to have happen is get really excited and make a decision about something today or get really fearful and make a decision today that has a really negative 5, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year compounding impact on ourselves, right? Like you might be at a store, you get really excited, you see something you want. 
doesn't mean you can just take it, right? Like there's effects of that. So, you know, it's a similar thing where is we don't want to remove that emotion, but we definitely want to put frameworks in place so we can make quality decisions. And sometimes that's education. Sometimes it's access. Sometimes, you know, it's uh, decision framing. Sometimes it's just having a broader view of the timeline or horizon of the world. And so we can make more informed and healthier decisions. You know, it seems like a perception exists among economists, or at least the the outside perception of the field of economic study is that emotion just isn't involved. But it sounds like the way that you're describing it, that's not the case at all. You have to keep the emotions in mind in order to accurately predict and track the way that people are going to behave in the economic sphere. Yeah. And and remember, like, that's kind of how economics developed, right, is that there was this more like we're going to create models and traditional, uh, you know, economics. We're going to be able to predict the way that people behave in these traditional economic models. And then what happened, right, that reality was different than the models, right? (laughs) Like the models couldn't perfectly predict things, even if they were pretty close, right? Like some of our market models and testing philosophies, you know, things looked close, but there was always more noise, as I would say, there's more variation. And, you know, even things like the supply and demand curve, like it's pretty good. But then there's like weird aspects of it, like where sometimes, right, if you limit supply, you increase the demand, right? And like, that's not necessarily how it's supposed to work. And other times you limit it and it hurts it, right? It's not uniform across everything. And sometimes you say, hey, well, if you increase price, what happens? Demand goes down. Well, it's not always the case either, right? Like there, there's been a, was it the, the one whiskey brand and was it Cheval or whatever, the whiskey, I'm forgetting which one it is. I think that's the one. And back, you know, back in the nineties at one point, they were, they would always end up on the bottom shelves at stores because they were a low cost and they literally just decided to double prices and their whiskey sales doubled, right? Only because the perception of the brand increased with the pricing. Now, in essence, that's a behavioral thing, right? Like it, it's not based off traditional economics. It's not necessarily quote unquote rational that our decision making changed, not because of the product itself, the availability of it or anything quality, just because of where they put the price, it changed our perception. I mean, that's emotional. That's that psychological behavior. And that impacts, you know, we're always biased. There's always nudges. There's always things that are pushing us in different directions. And, and reality is we just, I don't even know if we like, as we better understand it, if this is going to be healthier or not. I, I actually, I, I question that too. Um, but it's definitely there. And, you know, then we got Richard Thaler and Kahneman and we got more and more of this research. And so we're understanding this better and better now. And the the intersection kind of, you know, we definitely don't know how our brains work, but we're getting closer or we understand maybe we we don't understand less. (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) something like that. (laughs) Sure. Well, I mean, we've seen uh, price dynamics play out in some pretty interesting ways over the past year from toilet papers to PlayStation 5s to tickets to Disneyland. Uh, It seems like a lot of that stuff is fueled by emotion and perception as opposed to anything more concrete or or codified. But I did want to ask you, the Academy for Home Equity and Financial Planning, it has you as a member and you were also involved while it was called the Funding Longevity Task Force while it was at the American College. In terms of the Academy, what do you think it brings to the table in terms of um, expanding the conversation around home equity and retirement? And what are your efforts specifically right now focused on in the organization? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And for those that kind of don't 
know about it too. It actually, you know, it started before me and uh, was kind of out there. It was kind of a loose association of some academics that were meeting. And that was kind of it at the beginning, right? It was very loose. There wasn't actually a formal entity. They just kind of came together. They liked spending time with each other and discussing, you know, uh, housing wealth and mostly reverse mortgages, right? At the time. Then when I was at American College, I knew most of the people that were part of it, right? Wade Fow was at the college. He was working in the, the same center and program as me. And so I kind of went and made a pitch and said, hey, you know, American College, let's bring this in here. It's important. It's part of our ICP already. We're teaching this. And, and let's just add to what we're doing. So we brought that group together and made it a little bit more formal. And, you know, mostly at that time, we were doing, you know, media, we were shooting some videos, we were doing a little bit of research, but it was mostly, you know, and the group is and always has been, you know, it's a collection of academics that really don't get paid from the organization, right? So it's not like, it's a job that you go do something and you get money from. <laughs> so uh, you've got to kind of like care about that area and want to be involved in it. And we've grown now. I mean, I think, I don't know what we have now, 12 or 14 members from maybe the original six. And we've probably doubled, honestly, in members that are interested in this. So that's really cool, right? We keep adding people in the academic world. You know, Karen Hill, you know, came to a couple of our last meetings now too, and has started to get involved. And that's great because that's some somebody who understood, you know, the HUD side of the world is now, you know, part of it. And when I left American college, one of the questions was, should it continue on there without me? Should it move at some point? And I left the Carson Group, which is where I am now. Now we're a financial advisory firm. We're, you know, national RIA. We've got 320 offices, 16.5 billion-ish in assets, maybe. You know, I guess it's always hard to say because the market fluctuates so much. But at some point, we were right around there, plus or minus. And then I head up our coaching company. And uh, we coach financial advisory firms, about 1,200 to 1,400 firms at any given time. And there's not a natural fit then for this academy inside there. So it couldn't really come with me where I went. But then I had a good friend, Dr. Craig Lemoyne at University of Illinois, heading up the financial planning program there. And so I, I asked him, hey, would you like to be kind of the, the person for this? And then Wade agreed, and we kind of moved it over there. It changed names at that point. So then we got the Academy versus the Longevity Task Force. And honestly, the Academy is a better name for it because the Longevity Task Force, people always kind of like, well, are you studying longevity? Well, not really, <laughs> right? Like, so we just picked a better name at this point. And we did one major research project last year on financial advisors and what they're doing with home equity. So that was a really great project. That's published. It's up on the website. And we've gotten some articles and quotes. I think you probably covered it at once 1.2. I yeah. uh, got a couple of investment news, some industry stuff. Then this summer, we're working on a literacy-based one for advisors. So we've got a second research project coming out. And these are really the first two research projects that have come out from the like entity, right? So like from the Academy versus Wade, Barry, myself, Craig, you know, Sandy Timmerman, all of who have published, but not kind of officially from the organization. So that's kind of the goal moving forward is we're going to be putting out one or two surveys a year and then turning that into research and publishing. So as you kind of see, like, how is this progressing? Well, the 
entity itself now, now can outlive me, right? It can outlive the original members, right? It can become something bigger and actually start to impact the research and the conversations. Another thing we published this last year is really a compliance-esque guidelines for financial advisory firms. And that's had a good impact so far. And, you know, definitely, as I, I think I said back when I was doing it, it's like my goal was really to stir on conversation, then hopefully get some changes at some advisory firms around their own guidelines and conversations and how compliance views home equity and reverse mortgages. So that's all moving forward. And, uh, you know, I think that's been a good piece. It's definitely not done yet in the sense of uh, what we're doing with that, but it was a good launch. We'll probably get back to some type of event. We, we ran one event in conjunction with the Bipartisan Policy Center maybe two or three years ago in D.C., which was a fantastic event, and that did uh, spur on some changes actually out there too. We'll likely do one or two things maybe in the fall here, kind of in the advisory world. But that's kind of where we're going with the group. The long-term goal is just to actually you know, provide this research, provide a spotlight on this intersection of housing wealth and really retirement or financial, you know, financial planning, which is, you know, a big focus that has been on reverse mortgages. It won't be the only thing this group focuses on by any means that comes out of there anymore. It is kind of, you know, as I kind of said, this intersection of housing wealth really and financial planning versus just reverse mortgages. But the reverse mortgage piece will probably stay as a large part of it for a long time because, you know, it's the focus of the group currently and uh, there's not just not many people doing anything in that space in the sense of academics so this is the core group plus maybe four or five other people out there that are working on things that aren't attached to the the academy mm-hmm. great well um i'd like to move to some i guess higher level conceptual questions when it comes to the reverse mortgage product category since a lot of the work that the academy has done has been based around that and certainly has a lot of support from people in the industry i can attest to that. Uh, But some people who work in the industry interact with the changes that have been handed down to the HECM program over the last couple of years in a bit of a negative way, at least in the way that those changes are perceived to create additional product complexity. When looking at the ways that reverse mortgages have had to change over the past few years, what do you think those changes have done to the product in the industry when it comes to reduction of principal limit factors, the introduction of the collateral risk assessment, and the possibility of a second appraisal, all of those things. How, uh, how would you say that has affected the, the business? Well, I think I'll take the the thing that the reverse mortgage world doesn't always love. I think all those changes, almost all of them were really good changes. So in the sense that I think it's a stronger, better product, I think it's a stronger, better, you know, place for the government to be in for this, right? Like they made decisions that I think were smart on that. And I think for the most part made really good decisions to also protect consumers through a lot of those decisions too. So if you kind of look at through the lens of, was this good for the government continuing the program? Was it good for protecting consumers? I think the answer to both of those is yes. Well, what did we see on the negative side, though, is that, you know, a reverse mortgage applications and placements and loans going out went down. So for the industry, right, there was a negative aspect of it. But to some degree, you know, I, I think we get a healthier industry. And honestly, if you go back 20 years ago, 
we probably should have had some different rules and changes in place. And then some of the stuff we're talking about now wouldn't have become a problem. We wouldn't have a negative perception from the majority of Americans, right? The average American doesn't have a positive view of a reverse mortgage. It's slightly negative, at least from research we did maybe five or six years ago. And I doubt that's changed substantially between then and now. So, you know, to me, you always want to take care of that stuff first. You take care of the core and that'll allow you to build off that core in a stronger, better way. I do think that innovation is still needed. So you're seeing more and more, right, non-HECM reverse mortgage products come out, right? The proprietary ones. And they did really well, what, a year ago. It was a great year. And I think those are going to perform well. And that's good. I mean, I like competition in the market. So I think it's actually good for us to get more creative. But a lot of the companies just hung their hat on the HECM for a long time. And, you know, I think companies have realized now that we as an industry, right, it's very hard to be that subject to government regulations, <laughs> right? Like, where all of a sudden you're, you're going, you're doing great, government changes the rules three months later, your applications are in half, right? Like, I mean, you don't want to run a business like that, so you got to diversify to some degree. So, I mean, forward places too. You know, I wish we saw more forward lenders back in the space. I think that would be helpful too. We haven't seen a ton of that, right? There's a couple of forward places that are doing well that do both, but grand scheme of things, we don't we don't have a ton of that. But I'm sure like half the half the companies probably don't think that would be good. But I do talk to a lot of uh, you know reverse mortgage professionals that wish that there was actually more competition from mainline companies in the space because they feel like that would raise up the brand and awareness further. So, you know, I I think those are some things. But generally speaking, I think most of the rules were smart. And I do think that long run, the industry is in a better spot because of it. Sure. Yeah. And I think that there's a fair amount of people within the industry, at least based on conversations that I have that would agree with you. But there's also kind of getting back to the perception question again, you brought up the regulatory climate, which is pretty heavy in comparison with a lot of other products. But sometimes, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the more heavily regulated a financial product is, the higher degree of confidence that people can have in it. And that has not translated for reverse mortgages. Is that perception kind of accurate or what's your take on that? Uh, So uh, some, some degree of regulation, definitely, I believe, you know, I don't know the research in this area well. So this is me then opining and somebody might, you know, somebody might listen to this someday and say, he has no idea what he's talking about. So I'll preference, (laughs) I'll preference it with, I don't know the research around this, but, you know, uh, looking out there, like, uh, obviously there are times when regulation around something can increase confidence in it, right? I mean, we did that with banks, right? Way back in the Great Depression, increase confidence in banking, right? And we've done that in other areas too, right? You add protections and increase confidence from consumers. So yes, that does work. I think one of the challenges though around this is most people don't know about the regulations, right? Like I would actually bet that if I ask consumers, and this is a great question now, so, you know, Craig, whenever you're, <laughs> Craig or Shelly or whoever hears this, write it down, because I'm not going to write it down right now, but, right, like, actually ask consumers, right, like, y- you could have them rank, like, five or six different things and engage if they think reverse mortgages are highly regulated. My guess is the answer is going to be no. I think that most consumers and because I know this from advisors, advisors don't think about reverse mortgages as being a highly regulated area. They think about it being a very like 
loosely regulated, which is why compliance departments had to come up with all these restrictions. You know, I, I most people I don't think know either, or at least a large portion of the population, like has no idea that you'd have to go through, right, kind of the screening call and interact with somebody who's not selling you the product to learn about it, right? Like that whole process, people don't really know that that exists, right? Because I remember you, we got in an argument with somebody years ago that said, yo, you should really have counseling around this. This is a type of thing that you should, it's a big decision. You're like, well, that exists. They're like, well, it should be disinterested because that mortgage person is like, well, actually it is. They can't even like <laughs> force you to the same person. They're like, well, okay, well, it's still really expensive. <laughs> and you're like, well, you know, okay. <laughs> but I mean, so I don't, I don't have the sense that there's a large understanding. I mean, we know people don't understand reverse mortgage as well, right? I, I published that in the Journal of Financial Planning. People got, I think the average score is a 48% out of um, 10 questions, true, false, on the median or mean, not the median, but the mean. So that actually means on average, people did worse than a monkey would have done guessing, right? Because it's true, false. So you should get a 50% if it, you just had a large scale number and they did slightly worse than that. So like, you actually kind of see this notion that we don't know much about it. And mostly though, it's it's more, it's more deep driven misconceptions, right? Like the big one is bank gets a house when you pass away, right? Like people just believe that and they have a high confidence level of belief that that is the case. Why? Because when they see the stories about reverse mortgages, their interactions are, this house was underwater and the bank ended up, right, that it got foreclosed upon and they didn't get to keep the house, right? But like, that's not what happens when you do a reverse mortgage. That's what happens when any product, right, any lending th- situation secured by the underlying asset then becomes due and you don't have the money to pay it off, right? I mean, that's, it's not even just housing wealth. For a long time, I started explaining it's housing wealth, but then I realized it's actually any secured lending strategy ever, right? It's not even just that. Like, that's securing a loan <laughs> with property. So that's the assumption that people have because that's the news stories that, you know, they're accustomed to seeing around this. Sure. Yeah, of course. Well, um, 2020 was obviously a very eventful year for pretty much everyone on planet Earth, doing no small part to the COVID-19 pandemic. So those events naturally had an effect on the ways that people interact with finances and with retirement. Because of that, and there's been some data to indicate that engagement with reverse mortgages increased last year, not to record levels, but there was a notable increase compared with pre-pandemic. Do you think the value proposition of a reverse mortgage was strengthened by some of the economic stress that retirees have felt during the pandemic? Or is there potentially another effect that we're not discussing as much as we should? Well, you know, I probably haven't spent enough time thinking about this area yet. I mean, I would say, right, like if I look out at, uh, I think, stress points like you know, 2020, I think 2009, 2010, I think all of them actually demonstrate like actually just broader, like the need for financial planning to some degree, though, like 2020 is tough because we didn't end up relying on individuals to bail themselves out, right? Like we actually kind of went back and said, hey, you know what? <laughs> like this is such a big deal that like the government's going to bail people out. <laughs> and I mean, not every single person is bailed out equally. But I mean, reality is like the government acted in a major way throughout 2020 and into 2021 with the most spending we've ever really seen. And they just literally 
I mean, we went to, you know, I think if I told everybody that was going to be our strategy four years ago, nobody would have believed me either that like, hey, we're going to have this completely Republican controlled government and we're going to run into a challenge for Americans and they're just going to give everybody money. <laughs> like, And they're like, no, 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 the budget hawks would never let us do that. And you're like, y'all know they're going to. They're just going to they're going to be like, hey, you want to check? And they're going to send it to you. And they're they're not going to ask you anything. <laughs> and then they're just going to get businesses loans and be like, "Hey, you don't have to pay them back." <laughs> right? Like this whole idea of like you've got to, you know, pay back your debts, like we're done with that. We just threw that out the window completely. So, to some degree, I think that the pain of this wasn't fully felt in the sense of like had we not done this. And I'm a fan of all this, right? So, I'm not putting down anything. The government acted quickly and actually helped keep the economy afloat in a time that saved lives by doing that so people could you know not be forced into dangerous work situations so generally speaking fan of it but like it it changes the perception i think from people if it it had been more like 2008 to 2010 11 i think we would have seen more people looking for other options right so looking for lending and reverses and tapping into retirement savings which we did see some of too but so i think it strengthened it because it's another area of flexibility in your financial planning but i don't think it like totally like we're like zoom got pushed forward a decade i don't think we like push forward reverse mortgages a decade by any means through sure. throughout the pandemic right so housing i mean we'll just see i mean i think you mentioned before like is you know that's an area that has been a little crazy now and you know i, I would probably go so far to say you know we might be partially broken <laughs> <laughs> on some of that i mean it's just weird, right? We we have all this extra savings right now. I mean, 2020, like we have all, we had 30 million people unemployed at some point, and we finished the year with the best savings rates we've ever had in the history of the country. <laughs> we have the most disposable income we've ever had. The markets are at an all-time high. Rates are at an all-time low, right? Available housing is at an all-time low, right? And housing prices are at an all-time high. And I think like the number of days housing's on the market all-time low, inventory, all-time low, bids on houses, all-time highs. People are now buying houses unseen, right? Like, and it's a lot of people have been making offers, you know, unseen. And I, you know, I put all that together and I don't necessarily know that I would define that as a healthy market, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, you know, I wouldn't, right? So, you know, hopefully it turns out fine and people are, are happy with their purchases and they, stay there a long time and we haven't over leveraged based off of our income. So that's what I hope for. But I I have some concerns right now. I don't think we've hit like panic mode, but I definitely have some concerns. Mm -hmm. Sure. And how would you say, given your academic understanding of everything and your interactions with professionals, how would you say that financial planning itself has been most affected by the pandemic? And Do you think that the ways it's been effective might help make reverse mortgages a more attractive tool for planners to recommend? So not really. (laughs) There's probably people are hoping for a more insightful answer there. Honestly, I, I don't think financial planning changed all that much this past year, except for two pieces. I think the notion that people can have clients through a broader geographical area, that changed. Absolutely. Like people get like, before I used to have people say, well, I don't take clients in Florida because I don't go to Florida. Well, half their clients, they realize don't care to meet at all. <laughs> and, like, and, like in person, right? They're totally fine with phone calls and Zoom meetings once a quarter. 
Okay. Now you have to meet with people. You have to communicate with people. I think advisors also learn that, that like this act of communication is probably more important than most of them thought. But this location-based thing is not as important as most of them thought. And then I think, you know, the advisory world, so there's obviously many different aspects of it. The advisory world, like it kind of held together. Financial planners, the insurance world, struggled a lot last year, right? That in-person sale. And I think a lot of people learned that we've, you know, if you're going to continue your business in that space, you've got to be prepared for kind of a shifting dynamic. And I've seen a lot of insurance changes heading into this year, and they've bounced back a little bit. Now, how does this impact the use of home equity? I think the financial advisory world that held up together, right? They just kept progressing another year into more and more financial planning. So, reverse mortgages, I still get asked questions. I'm probably, you know, probably every year, I think it's gotten a little bit better from the advisory world for the last decade on on looking at this. So that's a good thing, right? Higher home equity values is probably a good thing for reverse mortgages too. I mean, it's just more opportunity. So I think that's all probably where it's progressed. But sadly enough, I don't think that we, again, I think there are certain areas that got pushed forward a decade this past year. I don't really think financial planning is one of them. Honestly, most financial advisors, right, they're either commission-based insurance fee only or AUM fee only and AUM. They really weren't disrupted. Most advisors I know had the best years they've ever had. Insurance agents, not necessarily true. I think they've struggled a little bit more, but first quarter from what I saw in some of the insurance numbers were great. And so I think some people first quarter this year had the best insurance quarters they've ever had. So that seems to be bouncing back fast, but just that in-person delivery of insurance is a little tough. Like just actually early in the pandemic, right? I know some of the reverse mortgage places struggle too, because it's a lot of in-person conversations and delivery. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, the last real major question I have for you is about the state of retirement in America right now. You know, we're starting to see some additional movement in terms of the pandemic, particularly in terms of like a vaccine rollout and certain restrictions are starting to come down. Given the state of retirement right now, what does it say, if anything, about reverse mortgage viability in retirement planning? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the probably the longer term benefit that we might get out of the pandemic for reverse mortgages comes to long term care world. And I typically say this, and I might change my mind again at some point. So I don't think we necessarily have a retirement income crisis in the United States yet. So do we have challenges? Absolutely. So then this gets to how do you define crisis, right? What is, is, right? But what is a crisis? I don't think we have a retirement income crisis. Actually, there are less people in poverty below the poverty line in retirement than there are in the general population. So I know sometimes people are like, oh, they don't have enough money. I'm like, yeah, but those people don't have enough money to meet their basic needs when they're in day-to-day life already. So it's actually a continuation of not having what you need. Social Security, Medicare do a good job of raising the standard of living for a lot of retirees. Now, when you look at long-term care, though, I'm actually closer to agreeing with some people that there is a long-term care crisis already in front of us. 
I think after last year, like my gut feeling inside is like, I'm okay with saying there's a long-term care crisis now. I mean, my state, and so I've got some home bias or whatever version of that here too. We did really poorly with that. Like I live in Pennsylvania in the very beginning of the pandemic, right? Nursing homes got absolutely crushed. We lost a lot of lives. New York had problems with it too. Multiple states, right? A lot of deaths came out of nursing homes, right? And there was some data, I haven't looked at it recently, but there was some data suggesting that people are pushing off and entering into nursing homes, right? Like I probably would too. I don't necessarily know after 2020 that where do I want to go live right now as a nursing home? So I think that we will see some very long lasting impacts of that, that people saying, you know what, I want to stay at home longer. Then how do you do that? Well, reverse mortgage has become a tool to provide some care at home and actually stay in the home for a longer period of time versus moving into an institutional setting. So I think we're going to see more of that. I I think that there's going to be this hesitancy towards some long-term care facilities. Also, the costs are really high. And I think that is something that is nearing crisis level because the number of people we have The number of available caregivers, the costs, the burden on Medicaid, all of that is nearing a breaking point. And we have no plan. Like, there just isn't a good plan out there. I mean, you know, some things like people ask, well, Social Security is going to break. Yeah, Social Security could break, but Social Security is like a 2.7% increase in payroll taxes and the system's fine. That's less than what the, that, that would be the equivalent increase that Tax Cut and Job Act reduced taxes for the average person. Like, we can do that. We had those taxes three years ago. (laughs) Like, we could go back to that. Social Security is solved. Like, I don't think that's what we're going to do, purely raise taxes. But like, yeah, we actually can fix that. Like, I can fix that tomorrow if everyone just said, hey, Jamie, fix this. If you told (laughs) me to fix the long-term care, you know, situation, I don't know that I could because some of the things are, are more deeply rooted fundamental in our society now of that we had fewer and fewer kids. We've got a big group that's going to be leaving and, and becoming, you know, later life people needing care. And we don't have enough caregivers. I can't create more people to provide care out of thin air. So that is a true challenge and, and kind of for me nearing a crisis mode. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, on that very sunny note, <laughs> I think uh, I think that's pretty much all that we have time for. Although I understand that you have your own podcasting endeavor, and if you have anything else in the works, please feel free to share it with RMD's audience. Where can people find you and the things that you do? Yeah, we'll plug all the things now. So my website's jamiehopkins.com. Easy to find me. On Twitter is where I'm most active if you want to interact at Retirement Risks. My book is Rewirement, which I do talk about reverse mortgages in there. And actually, most likely, the second edition is coming out the week that this is going live next week. So hopefully, but this was the original one. Well, they can't see video, but I have it in my hand, right? And... (laughs) So that's coming back out. And then, uh, you know, for financial advisors, if anyone's listening, right, Carson Coaching, you know, to me, the best coaching business out there for financial advisors, advisory firms, we coach financial professionals, uh, right, so they can run their business so it doesn't run them. That's the pitch. It's a great team. And then obviously the academy, you can check out our work and everything that we're doing there on the academic side. Excellent. Great. Well, Jamie, I can't thank you enough for for being a part of this episode of the RMD podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Chris, thanks for having me on and thanks everyone for listening. 
Thanks for listening to episode 21 of the RMD podcast. Again, a very special thanks to Jamie Hopkins for being so generous with his time in talking about reverse mortgages and financial planning with us. For more news and insights on the reverse mortgage industry, be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter at reversemortgagedaily.com. If you haven't already, subscribe to the RMD podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast content. I'm Chris Clow, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network based in Chicago, Illinois. See you next time.